If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Southcrest Baptist Church. Services are 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings and 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. We're located at 3801 South Loop 289 in Lubbock, Texas. If you can't join us in person, be part of our online congregation at southcrestlive.tv to stream our Sunday services live at 9.30 or 11. For more information, visit our website at southcrest.org. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we pick up our study, Knowing and Growing, from 2 Peter. In this week's message, we find the apostle giving words of wise counsel to Christians facing scorn and ridicule from those who don't share their faith in Christ and the belief in His promise to return and who reject warnings of judgment. Turn to 2 Peter 3, verse 1, as we hear, Staying steadfast in a skeptical society. From Pastor David Wilson. I hope that you are among the redeemed and that you never forget it. You never forget it. <clears throat> Today we're back in the letter to that second Peter wrote, that Peter wrote the second letter. Let me put it that way. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, I want, before I read, I want to remind you this is the last letter that he wrote before he died, before he was executed. And can you imagine you're trying to tell a group of young believers behind you that had not met Jesus personally, they had not seen him like Peter had, and you, and you know that you're not going to be here long, and then you, you say, well, I want, to, I want to pass along something that they don't forget. And so in chapter 1, he told, told us what God, what Jesus has done for us and that we have everything we need to live the Christian life. When you get saved, when you've been redeemed, you've been given everything you need. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You have the Word of God. You don't need any other blessings that come. I know God gives us a lot of blessings, but you don't need anything extra to live for Christ. He's done it all for you. The second chapter deals with all of the false teachers there are a lot of, of pagans that were coming in that were bringing in paganism. There were those who were legalists. They were bringing in that. And, and so he said, don't be deceived by people who try to tell you they're telling the truth, but they're not. You stay with the truth. And then the third chapter deals with the second coming of Christ. But not the details of the coming, but those who deny the coming. And he said, you're going to see a lot of people who are going to scoff at this. They're going to mock God. They're going to scoff at the fact that Jesus is going to return. And so he's trying to warn them, do not let them draw you aside. Do not let them discourage you. Now, I got to confess to you, sometimes I feel like we're losing. I, I, know, we, I know we're not ever going to be in the majority until the, the millennial reign of Jesus. But the, but the fact is, it's a little disheartening when you just see people that seem to be further and further away from God, and they seem to scoff at him and mock Christians. They treat us like we're a bunch of neurotic people that have to have some kind of crutch, and, and yet they just don't know. They just don't understand that when you have Jesus, he changes your life and, 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 and heads you in a different direction. So when you're surrounded, some of you may be surrounded at work by these kinds of people. Some of you may have them in class. You may have a professor that is anti-God. You may have a professor that is just saying, that's a bunch of nonsense, 
Well, this is what Peter's talking about in chapter 3. So would you stand while I read God's word, the first seven verses, and then, then I'll let you be seated and you can relax and go to sleep. Verse 1 says, beloved, and he starts by calling him beloved. My family, I love you. It's an it's a enduring term. Beloved, I, and you can imagine, he knows that he doesn't have much longer. And one thing he wants them to know is how much he loves them. Beloved, I, write, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray you'll encourage Christians today. I also pray that you'll wake up those who don't know Jesus to see that they must be redeemed, that they must prepare for the days coming when it'll be too late. But Lord, your spirit will guide the word. It will teach us truth. We ask that you do that now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you. Many years ago on the Reader's Digest, they recorded this in that portion that says life in these United States. A woman who worked for the Internal Revenue Service at times had to communicate with delinquent taxpayers, those who hadn't paid. And so on one occasion, she called Anchorage, Alaska, and was patched through to a ham operator in the Aleutian Islands, which is off the coast of Alaska. Two hours later, the ham operator raised, got a hold of the taxpayer's home base, and from there they reached him at sea with his fishing fleet. After the woman identified herself as being with the IRS in Utah, there was a long pause on the other side. And then over the static from the radio, somewhere in the North Pacific, he said, <laughs> you just come get me. <laughs> now, a lot of people scoff at God like the fishermen scoffed at the IRS. They somehow think that it's never going to happen because it happened, happened yet. Or if it ever does happen, they're going to be okay and there's nothing to worry about. Well, while few people are so bold to really openly scoff at God, they live their lives in such a way that they feel like there's nothing to worry about. There's not going to be any judgment. There's not going to be any accountability. And just before Peter dies, he tries to remind the Christians, you need to hang in there because in the last days, and by the way, the term last days refers to the first between the time between the first coming of Jesus which we just celebrated at Christmas 
and the second coming of Jesus, which hasn't happened yet. So we're definitely in the last days. That's what that phrase means. He said, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. And so with that in mind, you may not, it may not ever discourage you, but it seems to me like they are becoming more and more vocal and they're becoming more and more um, brave as far as their open mockery of Christians and Christianity. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. So when, when that happens, how do you hang in there? Maybe you're in a job that they don't believe in God. Maybe you're in school and so forth. How do you hang in there? I believe the truth's right here. I believe he's trying to tell these people, here's what you need to do. The first thing is, when you feel that way, you need to recall scriptural certainty. Now, I understand that the note sheet didn't get put in the bulletin today. Is that right? Have y'all got a place to fill in blanks? Okay. Well, see, I didn't know that till just now, a few minutes ago. So you're just going to, you're on your own. It wasn't my fault. I got it in on time, just so you'll know. I will find out whose fault it was, but it wasn't my fault. So you just do the best you can today. Recall scriptural certainty. You need to remember that God's word never changes. We don't need some new truth. We just need to be reminded of what's already been told us. Isn't it amazing how quickly we forget? And so, when you come to study the Word of God, you hear things you've heard before, and you go, oh, yeah, I'm glad I was reminded of that. That's the picture here. Peter says, I want to stir up your minds, reminding you. He's already said that in chapter 2. And the word stirred up is the same word that Luke used to describe when the disciples woke up Jesus, who was asleep in the boat when it was out in storm on the Sea of Galilee. They woke him up. And here's the term he's using. I want to wake you up again to remind you of the truth that's already there. And I want to tell you that no matter who tries to deceive you, no matter who tries to draw you off and try to confuse you, You keep coming back to the Word of God. There are two groups of people. There are those who believe this is God's Word and it's authority, and then there are those who don't. And those who don't are left to their own logic, they're left to their own desires, and they get way off base. And when you start to to waver a little bit and you begin to say, we know that guy makes sense. Maybe, Maybe God didn't create the world. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. You come back to this. That's what he's saying. I'm stirring you up to remind you again and again. Do you get tired of singing some of those songs we sang today? And you've sung them over and over and over. Well, when it comes to the Word of God, you want to read it over and over and over so you can be reminded because for some strange reason, it's so easy for us to remember evil things and people who've offended us and, and gossip. Why is it so hard to remember truth? We have to be reminded to remember truth. Come back to the Word of God. He describes it three ways. He says, the Word of God came from the prophets. Now, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. When you think of an Old Testament prophet, most of the time you think of somebody who was mad all the time. They were just people. They were men like you and me. But, but they had a word from God, and the word was, look, they, they came to Israel first, and they say, if you follow, if you follow God, he's going to bless you, Israel. If you don't, there's judgment coming. It's that simple. 
He would, they would tell the other nations, if you follow the God of Israel, of, of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, God will bless you. But if you deny, there's going to be coming a time of judgment. Have you ever heard anybody say this? Well, I believe in a God of love, but I don't believe in a God of judgment. Well, I'm going to tell you something. They don't read the whole Bible. They don't. Because you, you, Psalm 119 verse 160 says that the sum of your word is truth. We need all of God's word to give us balance. Yes, we have a God who loves us. Yes, we have a God who sent Jesus to die for our sins. We have a Savior who died on the cross. And we've been singing about those songs of redemption. Yes, we are redeemed. We are forgiven. And believe it or not, you have nothing to worry about if you know Jesus. You're not going to face the judgment of God. It's already been covered on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we're going to stand and be held accountable for how we serve the Lord as believers, but you're not going to face the judgment of God that the world is going to face. But the fact is, yes, we have a God of love and a God who loves us, but there's also coming a day of judgment. Why hasn't it already happened? We'll talk about this next week. We're going to talk about the timing of the Lord's return. I'm not going to set a date. Don't misunderstand. But, but the fact is that God's timing and your timing and my timing are all different. But God is wanting people to be saved. He wants people to come to know him. He wants people to be redeemed. But the prophets talked about judgment. But the, the, the scripture also came from the apostles. He mentioned. He didn't mention the specific commandment. That he, he says in verse 2, that the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. But back in chapter 2, he said the false teachers were given these commandments, and yet they turned from them. I believe what he's talking about is a lot of the practical part of living out the Christian life came through the apostles. They took the gospel and said, now this is what it means for you and how to live it out in your daily life. And so we go back to the letters that they wrote through the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit that, that, that shows us the practical part of it. He said, you don't turn from that. You come back. It shows you not only the coming judgment, it shows you how to live. And of course, we know it also came from the Lord Jesus himself, it came from the Savior. The words of Jesus are recorded. It's interesting, he has one definite article here, the Savior and Lord. It's the same. You don't separate Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. When you commit your life to Jesus as Savior, he's the Lord of your life. You, you, you know, a lot of people say, well, he's my Savior, he's just not my Lord. Well, I want to tell you, you commit your life to Christ, he becomes not only your Savior, but he, he guides you. He leads you. Come back to the Scripture. Peter saw the need to remind them. When people start scoffing about the second coming, I want to remind you, listen to this. There are 1,845 times that the Bible mentions the second coming of Jesus. 318 times in the New Testament. Once, one in every 30 verses in the New Testament talks about the second coming of Jesus. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament deals with the second coming of Jesus. 17 out of the 38 books in the Old Testament are given to this subject entirely. 
And so when people begin to mock the faith that we have and the hope that we have in the second coming of Jesus, and they say that's a bunch of nonsense, you just come back to the Word of God and start reading because it's certain. Don't take my word for it. Look it up for yourself. Well, the second thing you're going to have to do is you've got to recognize skeptical critics. You know, when I use the word recognize, you've got to expect it. The people around us without Jesus have a dark mind and they don't, they don't know any better. They're, they're, they, they're, their logic doesn't fit. They're, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the word of God. So why would they make any sense of this? You can expect it. In fact, when Peter writes this in verse 3, he said, know this first. The first thing I want you to know is their reality. He said, they're coming. It's for sure. You don't have to wonder if you're going to meet one. You're already surrounded by them. I, last night, just out of fun or really mere, mere curiosity, I thought, I wonder what's online concerning those who are antagonistic toward Christianity. Oh, you don't have to look far to find that. <laughs> I just looked up famous people who mock Christians or something like that, and here they come. And they had them all quoting. They're all quoting all this stuff, you know. They're all around us. You need to understand, you live in a world that scoffs at God. You live in a world that is antagonistic toward the things of God. So don't be surprised when people say the things they do. And don't be surprised when they laugh at you or ridicule you because you're one of those neurotic people in their mind that believes that there's going to be some mystical guy that returns one day. That's what they'll tell you. Peter said, you mark it down. They're coming. They seem to be multiplying. There's a lot of them. The early church lived with the expectancy of Jesus returning. They expected it. Now, he'd only been gone 30 years because this was written in the mid-60s, not the 1960s for those of you who grew up in the 60s. Okay, we're talking about the real 60s, 60 AD, that time. Uh, this letter was written, well, well, Jesus died 33, and so 27, 28, 29 years later, Peter is, is telling these Christians about Jesus and that he, that he ascended into heaven and that he's going to return. And, and most of the letters written at that time dealt with the second coming and the return of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 talks about how they were expecting him to return in their lifetime. And since they hadn't come back, since Jesus hadn't come back, they began to ridicule that. And they began to say, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. That's a bunch of nonsense. Well, John Calvin rightly pointed out that when you cannot take away the promise of the return of Jesus without destroying the very core of the gospel, he says, for when that is taken away, there's no gospel any longer. The power of Christ is brought to nothing. The whole of religion is gone. So Satan aims directly at the throat of the church when he destroys faith in the coming of Christ. See, Jesus came and died and rose again to pay for our sin so that he could come take us home. And if he's not coming back, then there's no gospel. So why do you think Satan attacks the second coming of Jesus? Because, folks, that's, that's what gives you hope, isn't it? 
you, you're, you live in hope of his return. You live in hope that when you die, you're going to be with him. Well, not only are they skeptical, not only is it a reality, but notice their roots in verse 3. It says they walk according to their own lusts. It's interesting when people who profess to know Jesus or those who don't profess even, they decide to pursue their own desires. They've got to find a loophole. So they make up one. Now, if you want to live according to the way you feel and not according to the way that God tells us, you want to live according to the way you feel, then you've got to get away from the word. And you've also got to get away from any accountability. And so if you don't know Christ and you hear somebody, you hear a Baptist preacher talk about judgment, well, I don't believe in that. I don't believe Jesus is coming back. I'm going to live like I want. I'm not going to be held accountable. When you die, you die, and that's it. They hope. But they want to get away from that, so they don't want you believing in it because it reminds them that they're going to be held accountable one day. And so they're going to scoff at it. But you need to understand that it's not a logical argument. It's a moral objection. I want to live the way I want to live. I don't want to be held accountable. I'm not going to believe in Jesus returning. I'm not going to believe in the judgment of God because I want to live like I want to live. Does that make sense? You need to understand that's their roots. And when you see one of these people or meet one of these people, you need to remember something. You need to picture them as being darkened. Their minds are dark and they're lost. They don't understand. How would you be if you didn't know Jesus today? Have you ever thought about how mean you would be? I'd probably be in jail. I would have run over somebody by now. Not only would I have run over them, I'd have backed up and run back over them. <laughs> I'm just being complete. That's Laura. She, she rides with me. And he's working on me. I'm getting better. I hope. I'm getting better. But the Lord changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He, and, and, and a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit. They don't understand that. And so they, they speculate, but their roots, their, their own desires are driving their mocking. I don't want to live this way. I want to live this way, and I don't want any accountability. He mentioned them in chapter 2 also. He said their eyes are full of adultery, and they're uh, enticing other people because of their fleshly desires. Notice their rationale in verse 4. It says, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The implication here is he's not coming. They've been saying that for 30 years. Now, now we would say it. They've been saying that for 2,000 years. He's not coming. We can live like we want to. It's all made up. It's all a fairy tale. We can live like we want to. But the idea is simply because it hasn't happened means it's not going to. But folks, that's not true. You know, we, in America, we don't wait very well, do we? You don't like to wait. You really don't. If the line's too long at a restaurant, you turn around, you're gone. I'm not waiting. If the line's too long in the drive-thru, I'm not waiting. But yet we travel faster than we've ever traveled before, so we don't wait as long to get there. And you can cook food faster than you've ever been able to cook it before. What used to take hours, can now you can nuke it in minutes, and it's, it's, it's done. 
we, uh, we take that for granted. We, people used to have to wait when they wanted to buy something, but now you can buy it on credit. You don't have to wait. Fewer and, people, fewer, and fewer people are waiting until marriage to enjoy the pleasures of sex. They don't want to wait. We don't enjoy waiting. And some people say, well, they've been waiting a long time. It's not going to happen. But if you look in the scripture, you're going to find that people often had to wait on God. Noah waited 100 years for it to rain, building an ark. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years before their son was given to them. Isaac, uh, Abraham's descendants, waited 400 years to go into the promised land. And so just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to because you need to remember something. God is not bound by time. You're going to see this next week, and his timetable is totally different than ours. In in all reality, Jesus, Jesus hasn't been gone very long. Not in God's timetable. A couple of days. You see? Just because it hadn't happened, but their, their rationale is, well, it hadn't happened. But then notice in verse 5, it really gets to the crux. Notice their rebuff. They willfully forget. They willfully ignore. The word means they shut their eyes to the facts. They shut their eyes. Well, now there are a couple of things you need to try to forget if you're going to do this. Well, what they're doing is, first of all, they willfully forget that there's a God who created everything. Because Peter mentions the creation and the flood and the coming judgment. So they willfully forget the creation, that God created the world by speaking it into existence. Hebrews 13.5 talks about with one word, God created things. We believe God created this universe out of nothing. He didn't take a bunch of stuff and put it together to create the universe. He created it all. He said, you got you to forget that if you're going to, um, if they, if they willfully forget that the God created things. And then you also have to forget and willfully forget that God holds all of this together. Isn't it amazing how these planets stay together and rotate and orbit and we, how accurate our days are? And you think that's all by accident? Have you ever wondered why all the planets are round? If it happened from an explosion, you think they'd all be round? They willfully forget. They don't believe in creation. They believe that, that some of this stuff just happened. First John, excuse me, John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through Him. Not one thing that exists was made without Him. So today, what are we taught by those who don't believe in God? That it all just happened. But they have a problem. The problem is evolution is a theory. Now, I was told after the last service, a lady came to me. She said, do you realize now that in some of the, some of the public schools, they are stating that a theory is fact? Now, I hope you know the difference between a theory and a fact. 
But let me ask you a question. Is evolutionary science really science? Because what is science? Science is when you have a hypothesis or you're, you're wondering if something has happened. And so you, you observe it and you can demonstrate something and you can prove it scientifically. I've seen some old people in my days, but I've never seen old, anybody old enough to been there when they say evolution happened. <laughs> Maybe a few years shy of that. They've never been able to prove evolution. It's a theory. But if you're going to take God out of your life, you've got to come up with a way to say, you know what? There's no accountability to this life. When you die, you die, and that's it. I said in the last service, you may have a relative that looks like an ape, but they did not come from that. <laughs> they didn't. You're not, you did not evolve out of animals. You were created in the image of God. But see, they, they, they believe the universe is a closed system that has no supernatural intervention. They willfully forget. There's no supernatural events. All of this has an explanation. So we're going to go back and something exploded a long time ago. Well, my question is, what exploded? And who made that? Well, they got a problem now because they say nothing. They say matter does not come from nothing. But fact is, there had to be some matter over here to explode to create the universe we're in. That takes more faith to believe than it does for me to believe in intelligent design in a creator of the universe. You know, you go down here to Home Depot and set off an explosion and see if a house happens. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And I don't care how many explosions you make and how much you shake it over millions of years, a house is not going to happen. It, it's just more chaos. So they willfully forget the Creator. They rebuff creation. They believe you commit intellectual suicide if you believe in a creator. What's the scripture say? Even Jesus mentioned creation. Of course, Jesus was involved in creation. But, uh, but notice their rejection in verse 6. See, Peter brings up the flood, and they said, the flood's never happened. There's never been a worldwide flood. And listen, you may be a student. You may be in college. You may be in high school. You may be a student. And I'm not, I'm not saying every professor's that way. I, I'm not. because I thank God for the Christian teachers and Christian professors that we have in universities. But I also know you're going to see them there. And they're going to tell you this stuff. I, I even went to a Baptist college, Baptist university, and there were liberals there in the religion department that explained away all the, all the miracles of the Old Testament. And they, they would say this, and some of them didn't even believe in the second coming of Jesus. And I want to say, what in the world are you doing in a Baptist university? Teaching students. You're going to be confronted with them. They are, and I had them say, well, the flood was just a localized thing. Okay, there's evidence around the world for a worldwide flood. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. Most every ancient culture in their earliest writings record the flood. 
And there's and and all around. How do you how do seashells get on the top of a mountain? There was a flood, but they willfully forget because if they decide that there really was a worldwide flood, if they really did let us find Noah's Ark, if it's still there, which I kind of believe it is, then they're going to have to come back and say, well, you guys were right, but, but we don't believe there was a flood. That's just a bunch of nonsense. They willfully forget. They reject it in verse six. So, you need to understand, you're going to be surrounded by them. They're not going to believe in creation. They're not going to believe in supernatural innovation. They don't believe that the word of God by his spoken word holds everything together right now. So don't be surprised. Recognize they're there. And again, I ask you when you meet one of them, picture them through the eyes of Christ. Just remember, if they come to know Jesus, if they come to believe, everything will change for them. Also picture them in the judgment, which leads me to the third thing. Verse 7, you need to remember a supernatural catastrophe that's coming. Now, nobody likes to talk about the coming judgment. But did you know there's a day coming that just like by the word of God, the place was flooded, this place is going to burn up. We're sitting on a powder keg. This world is going to be destroyed by fire. Listen to what it says in verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. Why hasn't it already happened? Because God's waiting on people to be saved. But by the same word, it's going to happen. Now you say, well, that, how in the world could that happen? Well, let me just give you a couple of little incidents. Have you ever thought about how combustible the world is? oxygen. It's required for combustion. It's what fire feeds on. You take away the oxygen, the fire dies. You feed it oxygen, it will flare. Yet with every breath, you and I breathe in this explosive substance. Nitrogen. It's a component that makes dynamite, TNT, and nitroglycerin explosive. Yet every day we gulp in massive quantities of nitrogen in the air we breathe. And the same God who made these elements and combined them in a way that they do not explode, all he has to do is speak a word and it's going to explode. Salt. Y'all like salt? I'm just about done and you can go lunch. You're going to put salt on what you eat probably. A third of it is sodium. Sodium chloride. A third of it is sodium. Sodium by itself is this gray putty-like substance, and it's got to be kept in kerosene or it will explode. If a drop placed in water, it will result in a violent fire, and yet you eat it every day. Water. Water is composed of oxygen and hydrogen. Both extremely explosive, yet combined in a way that makes them safe. All God has to do is speak a word, and the chemical arrangement is altered, and the world is a huge fuel dump. And yet we drink it every day. When you split the atom, a chain reaction happens that can level a city and vaporize people, yet we're made up of atoms. The earth is compared to a, a globular egg 
like the shell of an egg is so thin compared to the liquid inside. Well, they claim that the shell of the earth, the land that we walk on, is, is about the same comparison because most of the inside of the earth is lava and molten and fire. And some of it leaks out. Just ask Hawaii if it doesn't leak out every now and then. And yet, God has all of this in place. All he's got to do is speak the word. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth one day. Let them scoff. Let them mock. But the day of judgment is coming. And God's done everything in his power to prevent people from going to hell. They're already on the road. Two categories of people. Those who are already condemned, already on the road, and those of us who have been saved. Doesn't that word sound sweet now? You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been salvaged. D.L. Moody tells the true story. It was re- back in 1881 in England. They'd had a week of rain and bad weather, and the fishermen could not get out and fish. Finally, had a beautiful day. Sun was out. Skies were blue. Fishermen were going out of the harbor. 41 boats were headed out of the harbor, and the harbor master hoist the storm warning flag, not storm watch, storm warning flag, standing out there trying to say, don't go. There's another storm coming. Skies were blue, no clouds, all 41 ships left. Within several hours, another storm hit and very, very few of those fishermen came home because they did not heed the warning. How many times have you heard the judgment is coming one day. That God's, Jesus is going to return. That those without Jesus will be judged. You've heard it time and time and time again. And yet you've never come to salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned before, if you're a child of God, you don't have anything to worry about because the judgment's already been taken care of. Jesus took it for you. He died for you. He rose again. And you're saved when you trust Jesus. Don't trust the church. You trust Jesus. But for those of you who've never come to Christ, why? Why? Knowing that something's going to happen, would you not prepare yourself? And the only way to do that is to repent of your sin, ask God to forgive you, and place your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's do that now. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Pastor David. In the opening verses of 2 Peter 3, the apostle gives Christians who are suffering scorn three points of specific counsel to deal with this challenge. He exhorted them to recall scriptural certainty, to remember and hold fast to the promises of God's word. He taught them to recognize the reality of skeptical critics by their roots, their twisted rationale, and their rebuff of judgment. And he urged them to remember supernatural catastrophe, both that in the days of Noah and in the day of the Lord that is still to come. Counsel that believers today would do well to live by. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.